With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring podcast network. All boxing, no filter. Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Tuesday, December 11th, and this is the Fisgianados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes, email me at fistianados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistianadospod. Let's go into it this week. I didn't know what I was going to do for the deep dive this week. Had some great ideas from a couple people who either uh, messaged me on Twitter, emailed, um, one of them I'm definitely going to do going forward, but I'm, I'll get to that in the right moment. We're going to talk about Wilder Fury for the deep dive. We're just going to go take a huge sort of dive into that and look at not only what the pay-per-view numbers mean, but what could and what maybe should, should is the wrong word, what could happen next and what if I advised each fighter kind of what they what I would have them be doing next. And I include Anthony Joshua in that scenario. But let's jump into the review. On Friday, November 30th, we had Jeff Horn beating Anthony Medine by KO1 on ESPN Plus and thus allowing me to take a full lunch break. Uh, instead of watching that fight at lunch uh, during work, that was a KO1, and kudos to Jeff Horn for getting paid and getting me out of the office. It is still nice out in Los Angeles around this time of the year. Um, <clears throat> it was at a weird weight, so I'm not sure what Jeff Horn is going to do next. But we don't really need to talk about this fight too much more. On Saturday, December 1st, we had Showtime putting on two big cards, one of them being the huge pay-per-view fight between Wilder and Fury, which ended in that much-debated draw. We'll talk about this, like I said, after the other results in the deep dive. Um, on the pay-per-view undercard, Jarrett Hurd beats Jason Wellborn by KO4, Luis Ortiz beats Travis Hoffman, KO9, Joe Joyce beats Joe Hanks, KO1. Also in the build-up to the pay-per-view, Showtime tries an interesting experiment by showing one major fight on regular Showtime where Alexander Gvazdik beats Donna Stevenson by KO11. The Showtime card does an average of 232,000 viewers. It was the number 146 
rated cable show of the night. It basically gets lost in the shuffle. It has a weird start time. And then, you know, obviously, I so I'm not a real sort of thoughts and prayers kind of guy, but anything you do to send good vibes to Adonis Stevenson, now is the time to do it. He's clearly having a rough time. He had a traumatic brain injury. Um, you've got to be thinking about that. It's a risk anyone... It's a, it's, a, it's a risk that can happen to anyone when they do this sport. It's always something to think about it. Here's to Adonis Stevenson. I hope he pulls through with as much cognitive ability as possible. Um, let's actually get this one out of the way and go through the pay-per-view undercards as quickly as possible. Um, so to finish – before we even do that, let's just finish off the Bosdick stevenson fight. This was a purse bid that Top Rank lost and went to Showtime. It basically got forgotten about, which is a shame. It was a great performance in the ring by Vazdik. He started out slowly, uh, you know, out of respect for Stevenson's power. And by the end, he was in complete control and looked great. It was huge as far as light light heavyweights go. Because remember, only a year ago, HBO had three out of the four belts with this one, the WBC one. And the lineal title that goes with it just kind of like lingering at Showtime or in the PBC world, because I know Stevenson hasn't made all his defenses on Showtime, but pretty much most of them there. You know, just to be honest, I don't want to minimize Stevenson's health condition. Like, that's clearly the most important thing here. Um, But since he's gotten the belt, it's... It's not unfair to say he's been a complete disappointment as a champ. He never really fought anyone until Badu Jack. In my opinion, Jack was a legit opponent. Probably should have won that fight, but it essentially, you know, it felt like Showtime just on the whole didn't need to be too involved in this weight class. They were never really committed to it, and now they don't have to be. I don't know what will happen next kind of feel bad for Badu Jack. He's kind of the last man standing there, and I don't know what they're going to do with him. Um, There's so many fighters and so many fights to be made at this weight class. Vazdik is at ESPN, or he'll be back at ESPN after this. Alvarez-Kovalev rematch is happening on ESPN. I don't know what kind of options they have after that. Beater Biev is at the zone. Bevel is a free agency. Um, I did a whole episode on this weight class earlier this year. I've talked about it a lot. You know, there was a moment not too long ago where there was a belt at every single different broadcasting entity. And now you've got at least one, possibly two legit free agents. One guy at ESPN, one guy at the zone, neither of whom are true superstars. They're just kind of establishing themselves. You know, given that they're both going after Triple G right now, maybe it's the loser in the free agent battle sort of has this attractive fallback option, uh, which would be the sign Bevel and, and whoever comes out of that Alvarez-Kovalev fight. And you kind of have a fun division, almost on lockdown. Um, let's just keep making fun fights. This is a great division. Okay, the pay-per-view, like I said, this is the deep dive um, more on that later. Joe Joyce, great. Let's see when better in with better competition ASAP. Luis Ortiz, whatever you know. Um, 
like Travis Coffin made it interesting for a little bit, but I don't need to see anything like that again for Luis Ortiz, at least in terms of that level of competition. Jared Hurd's slightly interesting because there was maybe like a three or four minute stretch where it looked like he would be pushed. Uh, also interesting, he made a reported $1 million purse, which was reported to the California State Athletic Commission. Probably ended up making more than that. Um, that affects just sort of the math for the pay-per-view, which we'll get to later. But, you know, for the most part, it was a terrible undercard. Let's let's see these the good A-sides here in tougher fights from this. On Saturday, December 8th, we had a legitimately crazy day of boxing that I'm not sure I'd ever finish watching. Let's start out with the ESPN, so, ESPN show. Vasily Lomachenko wins by unanimous decision over Jose Pedraza. Emmanuel Navarrete beats Isaac Dogbe by unanimous decision. Teofimo Lopez wins by electric KO1 over Mason Menard. The show averages 1.86 million viewers for the entire thing, with the main event averaging just over 2 million viewers. It was the third-rated cable show of the night, following the top-rated cable show, which was the Heisman Trophy presentation. Big night for ESPN. Uh, Pitaro was was at the fight. I mean, I guess I, I didn't watch the Heisman pre- Trophy presentation. I'm guessing he was there, too, and he just went to the fight afterwards. He, but that shows you the level of commitment ESPN has right now for this whole thing, this whole contract with Top Rank, and these are great numbers. I, you know, I think I think there is um, you can be critical of this, and and here there's a strong case to make that three total fights coming off of like a Heisman, a large Heisman audience, probably not the right move. This was a complaint from hardcore fans during the Crawford fight when ESPN went 45 minutes without any action in the ring. Because remember, that was a situation where there was an early first-round KO with Shakur Stevenson. And then it was 45 minutes till Crawford got in the ring. I didn't mind that as much because they went right into sort of these like great, what you call them, marketing-slash-PR pieces on Crawford, which I thought were meaningful. This one, though, had too much sort of broadcasting booth and coverage and it just got laborious by the end, uh, even though there was, you know, the Navarrete Dog Bay fight was really great. Like, it was a fun fight to watch. But just for context, I mean, I set my DVR for 30 minutes over the scheduled time period, and I only got through the sixth round of the main event. I had to catch up on the on the rest of the fight later. You know, the it it just moved too slowly for an event that was coming off of the top-rated cable show of the night with a big audience. It, even today, and we're recording this on Tuesday, it's some interesting discussion over on, on Twitter over if they should have just gone straight into the main event. And I think there's a case to be made for that in, in situations like these. I think there's a case be, there's certainly a case made for only having it be a two-fight show. And I think there's a strong case to be made to head straight into the main event. Now, if you're not going to do that, then it's, you know, it's prospect showcase time. Maybe it's not the dog we fight, no matter how good that is. People don't know who he is. And you just do the Teofimo Lopez and then straight into uh, Lomachenko. I, I think I'm fine with that. I think, I think that's 
probably the way this kind of stuff should be done. Three and a half hours, though, was just too long. Um, the Navarrete Dogway fight was a really good one. Again, I hate to recycle Twitter stuff, but Dogway unfortunately moved off my list. Like, I would literally send my wife a Google Calendar invite when he was fighting. He, he made that list, a short list of fighters for me. I think he's still must see TV, but you got to give credit to Navarrete here. He's a relatively big underdog. I mean, he's like six or seven to one on the comeback. Um, and he matched up stylistically real well. I am no longer blind to Doug Bay's shortcomings. He does have shortcomings, but I still am on that train. And then Tiafimo Lopez, that's a KO of the year candidate. What a prospect he is. He's basically the prospect of the year. I'm just so excited to see what he does next. Like, he's a legit, legit, he might be one of, he might be the best prospect out there. He just, he might be that good. He's electric. I do want to see him in with tougher competition. Um, not to take anything away from Mason Menard. I think Menard's a good fighter, but I want to see Tiafimo Lopez, you know, move quickly. I think he's kind of ready for it. Okay. On to the HBO show, where in the final card ever for HBO, Cecilia Bracus wins by unanimous decision over Alexandra Magziak Lopes. Juan Francisco Estrada wins in KO7 over Victor Mendez, and Clarissa Shields beats Femke Hermans by a unanimous decision shutout. The show does 339,000 viewers, peaking at 379, which is terrible and to be expected. I guess you could make a case there was so much other fight, just combat sports stuff on in general. There's a UFC that night. Uh, which was tough competition. There's the Showtime replay, which I'll get to later. That does 488,000 viewers. There was even some some PBC preview show stuff on Fox, which I haven't seen yet, which did a terrible rating. I'm not even going to really get into that because um, it was at 11 o'clock, and, and it just it, it really didn't move the needle at all. But I'm just so glad they're doing it. I don't want to be that critical of it. But anyways, let's just move on from, you know, there's no point in making an argument as to whether this was, you know, a decent audience or not for HBO. It's, you know, I'm not going to rehash what I said towards the end of last week. I haven't talked, you know, talked about this at length on the podcast in earlier episodes. I'm not going to rehash all that stuff. I was very critical of this on Twitter uh, my take is basically, I don't think Peter Nelson deserves a lot of crap for the demise of HBO boxing on the whole, but for this show fire away, I mean, this is just not a fitting end to a franchise that defined the sport for decades. And I feel like these were solvable issues. HBO could have gone out on a much higher note. They could have bowed out after that triple G fight or even the Jacob Starevichenko you know, fight as part of the buildup or in the replay. Like, they could have come out earlier in the process and just said that they were leaving the sport. They could have really had a nice curtain call. They didn't. And because of that, like, this is one of the messier breakups or something that I can remember. You know, it's contractual obligations and you, and sort of a budget that you have to spend. So the final two cards go down as small events that weren't competitive at all. I mean, I legitimately think that in the final two cards, 
They televised. There was a tough argument to say there were more than like two or three competitive rounds at all, including main event and undercard fights. I mean, there weren't even a whole lot of rounds. Like there were a couple rounds in Bivol, in you know, in the Bivol Pascal fight that you could even say were fought at a really high level, and that's it. I mean, this is it's five fights total. I like women's boxing. I don't mean to denigrate it, but HBO didn't even televise it until this year. It's just not the way to be going out. I find it all extremely cynical. Why they they could have gone out on a better note. Why they didn't, I'm not sure. Uh, they could have filled the contractual obligations this summer. You know, remember, there was a stretch when Jaime Munguia headlined two fights in a row just because they took a couple months off during the summer. And when you look at the merger situation at Time Warner, it was very clear that HBO had internally positioned itself as ready to move on, uh, which, you know, I've been over this. I think it's understandable. AT&T clearly needed to sign off, or at least maybe they did, or some part of it. I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I don't think... It was a big secret that there are other Time Warner properties who at least showed an interest in boxing. It came out today. Turner signed one FC. They're going to televise one FC. I mean, Turner definitely inquired about Canelo. I mean, I think that's even been reported. And I have heard there were other fighters in free agency that were interested in. I mean, how embarrassing would that have been for HBO if one of their corporate cousins essentially like starts televising boxing after they've said that there's no, you know, the research indicates it doesn't help, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't even talk about this. You know, they, they could have just told triple G and Canelo before the fight that they were going to leave the sport. Like they end up like they're bidding on the Canelo fight to put the Canelo fielding fight on pay-per-view after the, you know, after this, like, I don't get it. it you know, it really, none of this would have made an employee a difference to the employees who got laid off either. I mean, they, you know, it, to their credit, HBO cares about that. You know, maybe it would have helped them get jobs earlier in the process. I don't know. Um, but I just, I don't understand it in the greater picture of how HBO programming is perceived this isn't just going out with a whimper. It's just not a great message at all. I mean, it is going out with a whimper, but it's more than that. It's it's sending a really bad message for what HBO Sports is moving forward. Uh, so many other great HBO shows, they left with iconic final episodes, or at least they allowed the creators of the show to finish telling their stories, which I think is super important and in the DNA of HBO. That didn't happen here. So I'll leave it there. All right. Other interesting notes. The Showtime Wilder Fury pay-per-view replay does 488,000 viewers. There's a ton of fights on that night. So it's just is what it is. Uh, let's do a couple of news and notes because I think a lot has happened and a lot of interesting things have happened. I said from the last episode that I touched on this, DAZN, the streaming deal with Major League Baseball, and how significant that is, you know, I think it underscores how ambitious DAZN is trying to be in the U.S., and it's a really creative deal. DAZN 
didn't get the rights to a single game of Major League Baseball at all. And when you look at the landscape, Major League Baseball has made some streaming deals. Like, they made one with Facebook Watch. And $300 million is a lot of money. I mean, it's definitely more than what they're paying for boxing. But it's huge from the perspective of the amount of tonnage that it represents. Like, this is seven nights a week. It's a really big deal. It's multi-hours a night. And it's their first foray into really sort of trying to cross over fans from other sports. Sports, you know, I'll get, I'll mention this later in the podcast again. I actually had, I'm doing a two-part piece for the ring on streaming services. And I had the, you know, I was fortunate enough to talk to Joseph Markowski from DAZN today as, as an interview for really what's going to be the second part of the piece. And he, you know, I asked him about crossover programming and he basically said their ambition is to get into major sports and to start out, this was the first sport. Like, they're really courting the Hispanic audience. And this is the sport that profiled among the four major sports as having the biggest Hispanic audience and and, and probably the best candidate to go with uh, boxing at the moment. So, you know, I'm intrigued about how they're going to sell this and, and how they're going to cross over. I've, but I've already heard a little bit of it. And, and this is impressive. All right. Amazon interest in the Yes Network, given that the RSNs have come up for sale in this whole Disney-Fox merger mess, I said I'd talk about this one too, Amazon is a place that I, along with many others, sort of had high hopes for in in what was like streaming services could mean for not just sports in general, but combat sports. And I I know a lot of people who work there just because of working in the consumer marketing department at HBO, a lot of my former colleagues have dispersed into, you know, a lot of these sort of streaming entities all over the place. You know, I know their Amazon internally is very high on sports. I know they're still working on figuring it out. They couldn't really pull it together for UFC or boxing, which was disappointing to me. I thought especially the UFC could have been something where we could see some interesting stuff from them. But they're interested in the Yes Network, and that would be a big deal. I think it makes a lot of sense from a merchandising standpoint, which is huge. I don't think this will apply to combat sports in the near future. But I will say definitively, if Amazon decides to get into sports at a high level, boxing is one of the sports that would make sense for them uh, for a couple reasons. I know they like having football. Um... But I actually think the way they look at programming in general, the top sports for them are going to be basketball, soccer, you know, or a sport. You know, boxing, I think, would be a tier down. Uh, But they're looking for sports with global appeal where they can sell merchandise and sort of relatively easy ways to translate stars likeness across territories just when you think about it from that perspective, basketball and soccer are easily the top two for this. But I think boxing is a really strong candidate to be in that second tier. They're not going to jump in anytime soon. I mean, that's my understanding. But I think a couple of years down the line, especially if one of the current entities you know, drops out in boxing, I think they're a candidate. I think they're a, a really good candidate to televise some, some live sports at some point. Uh, and I know they're very happy with how that NFL deal has worked out for them. 
All right, another news note: Terence Crawford. It looks like he, where it looked like he was going to fight Louis Colazzo on March 23rd. Now it seems like there's an offer out to Amir Khan. Maybe that's on pay-per-view instead of regular ESPN. Khan could also fight Kell Brook, who kind of looked terrible this past weekend. You know, let's just. I think this is just something to keep tabs on. March 23rd is a terrible day to do the pay-per-view. It's it's a first weekend of March Madness. It's a week after the PBC pay-per-view. And look, I applaud ESPN's attempt to get creative and have Crawford fight three times next year. You know, we all know the fight we want to see, though, and it's, it's neither of these two. I will say I'm not in love with the Colazzo fight. A Khan fight does intrigue me. I mean, it's no Errol Spence, but Amir Khan, look, he's got incredible hand speed. He's got a pretty high boxing skill level. It makes for... His style makes for like really good fights against A or even A minus or B plus level guys. I don't think it does great pay per view sales, but let's take it one step at a time. All right, <clears throat> Fox preview show. Last episode, I gave Fox a fair bit of criticism for their upcoming PBC schedule and what I think is a lack of programming strategy. I'm not going to walk that back at all. But what I will add to it is they have followed through on the shoulder programming element to all this. From what I've heard, there will be a show with Mike Coppinger that's called Face to Face, which functions as a way to sort of get to know fighters and build a relationship between them and and the audience outside the ring. There's also going to be another show with Kate Abdo hosting that will be really similar to some of the UFC shoulder programming that Fox did, where there's, you know, fighters in a really nice studio and it's Fox's top in-house production team. All this stuff really matters. And I think they're, you know, it sounds like they're taking it, you know, more seriously than ESPN is. I mean, remember, I know, and I'll get to the Max Kellerman ESPN2 announcement in a second here, but I was going to wait and talk about this on the sort of a viewer experience deep dive show, but ESPN and ESPN Plus, like ESPN Plus, you look at their shoulder programming, it's been really underwhelming. I mean, Dan Rayfield's show to me would be a pretty good podcast. It's just not a TV show. I mean, it started out in his basement and now it's in a studio that still isn't that impressive. And whenever he he has guests on, and I'll say Lampley as a great example of this, it's over Skype. Like there's like a weird connection issue and you're trying to listen to this interview and it's really good content, but then, you know, you're watching Lampley on Dan's TV screen, on Skype, on your TV screen, and it just doesn't feel premium at all. Mannix had a really good show on there that was really fun, but obviously Mannix left. He went to the zone. Mark Kriegel, you know, I think there's been one or two episodes of his show. I think it's been, you know, from what I've seen so far, it's been really good. You know, moving on to DAZN, like, I haven't really seen anything from DAZN. Like, they just put a series out on Canelo that I actually haven't watched yet. But, you know, I haven't seen any kind of studio show plans or anything like that. And tying this all together, going back to Fox, it's impressive. Like, they're coming out with this stuff before their first fight, which is how you should do this. You should come out with quality shoulder programming to build your fights, not eight months later or not six months later when you're kind of figuring it out. Like this should be one of the priorities that you do right away. So, you know, even if it just has some nice moments early on, or if it takes a few episodes to get its footing, like 
I think you can use clips of it in creative ways to help showcase the fighters on social media, you know, and other forms of marketing. Like this doesn't make up for what is clearly not a great schedule early on, but it does show that Fox is following through on aspects of the deal and trying to build the fighters. Like I also want to be clear here, doing TV for this kind of stuff is hard. It takes a certain type of reporter to make compelling television. I mean, it's really easy to sit here and point to, like, the Larry Merchants of the world and say, oh, like, Larry came from print. You know, you should be able to get great real reporters reporters from print. Look, I can tell you, it is a different skill set that makes a good print reporter from one that makes a good TV personality. It's also a different skill set that makes you a good studio analyst from one that makes you a great broadcaster. You know, I think if you look at the sort of the bigger name reporters in boxing right now, Coppinger is one of them that's a pretty good candidate for TV. I've put a lot of these guys on tape for pay-per-view preview shows, or if I didn't put them on tape, I've edited them or given notes on them. And like, it's tough to give a good quote for TV. Shoulder programming is hard. I'm glad Fox is putting some real muscle behind it on the production. I'm glad they're using real boxing beat reporters to do the show. And, you know, let's see what we get here. Moving on to the ESPN 2-1 with Max Kellerman. Um, Max's show, like, it's an interesting piece of news. I want to address it. Uh, my, my complaint, you know, my complaint about ESPN Plus in general, I think it makes sense, and quite frankly... The hearing this news, like this show could make a lot of sense. Like, I think this show has a chance to be really good. I know a lot of core fight fans out there, especially the Twitter, you know, there's a a whole force of people on Twitter who have a lot of negative things to say about the way Max calls a fight. Like, and I think the narrative element to it, you know, where if the fight doesn't fit the narrative that Max has sort of written in his mind beforehand, then it becomes like laborious commentary. I think there's some real validity to that complaint. However, I think Max's style is perfectly suited for a studio show, uh, at least one that he hosts himself. And my hope is that sort of once he gets out of the theatrics that first take ends up being, that this will be an opportunity to get into hard-hitting analysis you know, I think he's capable of it. I'd like to see what he does here. Another, let's say, one more news and note. The World Boxing Super Series financial problems. This has been a complete roller coaster ride. And I think I'm just happy. Like, it feels like today it's over. And we're just going to get all the fights that we thought we were going to get. I'm happy that it looks like there's a solution. Um, I love the World Boxing Super Series. I want to keep keep watching it. The interesting thing, okay, so going back to the suggestions for this episode, someone, I think Jason Tufexis out there suggested that I do a deep dive on the worst case scenario for all of these broadcasting entities. I love that idea. Great idea. I'm not going to do it this week because of the Wilder Fury thing. I will do that, though, I promise. That is an awesome idea for a show. All right. On to the deep dive. Let's look at Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury. Oh, man, this delivered in the ring. It ended up doing much better commercially than I thought it was going to do. And certainly initially, you know, by Saturday, I think I was up to, you know, I was sort of ready to up my take on buys for it. Let's start with the ring, with the result in the ring. 
It was a split decision draw. I thought Fury won the fight. I thought he won eight rounds. I thought he lost two. And I think there were two toss-up rounds. You know, but I want to emphasize here, I watched the fight purely for enjoyment, not to score at all. And it was just a great fight. I mean, Tyson Fury showed the heart of a champion by getting up, especially in the 12th round. And Deontay Wilder, for all the lack of technical, you know, for all the technical proficiencies you have with him, all the lack of technique, like, that right hand is legit, and he is fun. He makes great fights. Like, I think there's a legitimate case to make that he is in, like, both of his fights are fight of the year candidates, and, and like, it's like when two actors from the same movie get nominated for an Oscar. Like, like that's what we're dealing with here. I mean, like, he's been great this year. So, going back to the scoring, I don't have a major problem with the draw. I think even if you took my scorecard and gave the two toss-up rounds to Wilder, remember, that's 114-112, and that's on like my not-paying-super-close-scoring-attention-to-it card. And I think there were enough closer rounds that, depending on what you value in scoring, like I think an intelligent person can come up with a 113-113. I think it starts to get really tough when you're looking at scoring a Wilder victory, but it's possible um, I think you could have it 116-110 for Fury, though. You can certainly have it 115-111 for him. His defense, his counterpunching, his, his, it's like defense and, defense is a criterion. It's a scoring criterion. I mean, his, his counterpunching was excellent. You know, if you're going to counter that point, and I think this is important, if you just purely looked at the final punch stats for the fight, and even if you looked at round by round, I mean, Wilder out through Fury in a lot of rounds. And Fury didn't outland Wilder by a whole lot of punches over the course of the night. I think one of the things that made it feel like a lot more of a blowout, you know, blowout's the wrong word, but one of the things that made you feel like Fury was ahead was just how great he was at making Wilder look silly when Wilder missed. You know, but... He didn't outland Wilder by a whole lot over the course of the fight. You know, we, I think we will see it again. But if you're asking that as a question before we even get to that, let's talk about the pay-per-view buys. Credit Mike Coppinger here with being the first guy to really get the info on this. It looks like it's going to clear the 300K buy mark, maybe end up at 325. That's a really nice number for Showtime. It's a victory for Showtime subscribers. Remember, I've made this point. If you're a Showtime subscriber, depending on how big the guarantee was to Wilder and to Fury, but especially Wilder, if this had performed poorly, you would be subsidizing this fight whether you liked it or not. And initially, I thought this would do in the 200 to 225 range. So that would be the case if it did that number. But if you if you listen to this show, you would understand that you can screw up a lot in the buildup. But if you do, if you have a great last three days, that really matters. And I definitely felt the presence of the marketing plan in the last few days. I saw a lot of commercials on TV, and I don't even really watch that much TV. So, like, just from a pure anecdotal sense, that was great. I was definitely targeted on social media. I was definitely targeted targeted with programmatic ads uh, online. I saw a lot of digital ads. I saw a big ad during the SEC title game on CBS. 
I'm not sure if they paid for it or not. It looked like it was just a 10 second clip right before the action. So maybe it was technically what we call an on-air ad instead of an ad buy. Either way, that it feels like that was a low six-figure freebie just thrown to Showtime on this. It shows a huge internal commitment that they have to the sport, whether they spent six figures on it or whether they got a discounted buy or whether they just used corporate leverage and got it for free. Um, it's a massive cor- corporate commitment right there. I applaud them for that. After I saw that, I was probably mentally thinking this would do 250 to 275 maybe even a little bit more. But again, credit showtime, great marketing plan. I don't actually think if you look at the TV spot, I don't think it was actually that great. It was pretty much just what we would call a footage spot, which meant that it had highlights of the two guys fighting rather than an actual theme and storyline and a photo shoot to it. Um, I do think a better spot would have actually helped the show a bit more, but they probably didn't have the budget to do that since usually, you know, when you do a spot that isn't a footage spot, it's usually really expensive. Either way, there's a really great buzz about this fight. It was a top Google search item and a top social media topic. And that brings me to an interesting statistic that I read earlier this week. I tweeted it out as well. There's a UK research firm, Musa, that reported there were 10 million illegal streams of the fight worldwide, including 1.9 million in the United States and 1 million in the UK. Um, Like I said, anyone who follows me on Twitter, pretty intense debate about this. I want to make it clear here that I think you do have to take those numbers with a huge grain of salt. There's a good chance that they are counting a stream as someone viewing a link for three seconds. And anyone who has illegally streamed a fight before is aware that you are a good candidate to get kicked off your stream more than once over the course of the fight. So 1.9 million, I mean, that could be five or 600,000 total people attempting to watch it, just getting kicked off a couple times having some kind of issues with the fight. It could even be less people than that, but it could be more. Like, we don't really know. Um, I think the larger point here is that this info is way beyond statistically significant. Had you asked one of the people running HBO pay-per-view like 10 years ago about illegal streaming or pirating, they would have said, sure, we know what happens but it's a small enough amount that it's not worth the trouble of major enforcement. They probably would have said that there are some people pirating it who never intended to pay for it anyways. Uh, you know, the others who are stealing intellectual property, like that's bad, but like all in all, if you look at total bias for fight, it's a pretty low percentage of people that the promotion is losing out on. Like maybe, For fights with much lower buy rates, like in the 200 to 300,000 range, like maybe you're at 10% for something like this, more than likely five, and that percentage would go down further as you head up towards a million buys. I doubt they would say this publicly, but essentially they're inferring that the expensive price for the fight is just sort of baked in the added cost to consumers for this. Like, These stats we've heard, they do explain a lot, though. And, I mean, there's so much to unpack here that I want to take it one step at a time. The social media reaction to this fight was that of a fight that sold 
way over 500,000 buys, maybe even 750, you know, or approaching a million. Like there was clearly a lot of interest in this fight, especially in the UK. So I'm not inferring here that there were 1.9 million individual people who stole the fight. What I will say is I've never even heard of a scenario where more people pirated the fight than bought it. And I think like that might be the case here. That might be the case here. We might have a scenario where way more people at least try to pirate the fight than buy it. And I think there's a lot of things to talk about from that. I think that, you know, part of that is goes to the core of what's really happening with the U.S. pay-per-view market right now. Like 75 bucks is just not value for one fight. It's just not. And I think you saw here, like what you ended up seeing is a lot of different things sort of converging on that. Like, first of all, it's really hard to safeguard something like that when there's lots of different ways to purchase the fight. Like if you were distributing it on one OTT platform, which is kind of the way DAZN does it, you just could have like, it's, it's so much easier to police that. And it's so much more difficult to stream it. Like, you can buy the Wilder Fury fight from so many different places. Like there's just no, I mean, there's it's dozens of different places where you can order the fight and to police it. Like these aren't interns that are working on a Saturday night, kicking illegal streams off the internet. It's expensive to do. I think there's a case to be made that millennials and younger generations are interested in the fight, but they look at the price and how easy it is to get good quality stream in this stage. And they don't even consider buying it. I think that does come back to price point. Like there are a few generations of fight fans out there that have grown up with pay-per-view and they've just been trained to bear the cost and have the cost increase from time to time. You know, pay-per-view for hardcore fight fans has been looked at as having inelastic demand. And in case you forgot from Econ 101 that mean, what that means, it really means that you can increase the price however you want and the consumer base is just so hopelessly addicted to it that they're going to buy it. For fight fans of a certain age and, and above, this might be the case. Keith Eideck wrote a great piece on boxing scene explaining all this to, public, to the public and why everyone in the system is just sort of reluctant to change anything about it. But I wrote a version, you know, I, I wrote about a version of this for The Ring, and I theorized that we've begun to leave that world. We've begun. And maybe I'm six months off, maybe I'm a year off. I mean, I, I guess I'm clearly six months off because... There's a, a huge amount of pay-per-views coming, but how can one pay-per-view now cost as much as seven or eight months of DAZN, six months of Showtime, probably basically a year and a half of ESPN Plus? Like we've gotten to the point where pay-per-view pricing has just alienated fans to the point where they are fighting back, and not just in small ways. Like these illegal streaming numbers are huge, even if in the end it's just a fraction of that 1.9, like even if it's 10% of it, like that's over half the people who actually bought the fight. I don't know whether these people are all true candidates to buy the fight either. The price point has just gotten so high that these people probably don't have a moral issue with what they're doing. And I'm sure that goes for a lot of people who listen to this podcast. The price is so ridiculous that you have no moral qualms saying, screw this, I'm not buying it. And that is like, I have a big problem with intellectual property theft. Like, but I also have a big problem with the price of pay-per-view and why it is that way. Like $75 is crazy to me. 
It's way too expensive for a single fight, but the fighters are just seeing such a small percentage of this. The fact that half and many times over half that money that ends up going to distributors, especially when you count in HBO or, you know, back in the day or Showtime, like that's crazy. That's crazy. In this day and age, a place like Spectrum is taking probably close to a 50% cut of that sale and it's mostly using unsold ad inventory just to meet a certain gross ratings number, which is just batshit crazy. It's insane. At the very least, the fighters and their promoters should make more money. I mean, yeah, I'm actually making a moral argument here. The promoters should be making more money because they're actually working for it. The cable companies aren't. That's how crazy this system is. And of course, no one inside the system wants to experiment with it, which is why even for as great as Keith Idex piece was, there's no solution because when you just talk to boxing insiders, and I'm not criticizing for doing that, there's no one out there who represents the consumers in all this. Like you, To get a quote from anybody, you have to get a quote from ex-pay-per-view people or people who work at cable companies, and they're not going to want to fix the system. I mean, talking to them is like, going to Wall Street to fix the tax system, like the, you know, or the finance system, like, like you're just talking to the wrong people, basically. There's this argument that people inside the system have that they'll put out there that the people who should be upset about this are the ones who actually paid for the fight. Those paying customers are paying a higher premium because of how many people are stealing the fight. And that's total garbage. I just explained how everyone views this as an inelastic product and they'll assume that they're just leaving money on the table if they lower the price. I mean, heck, I even worked on a pay-per-view where one of the promoters on the promotion, we were charging $5 less than comparable pay-per-views. This promoter went out of the way to say, we need to explain to fans the value that they're getting for this pay-per-view at this price point. And it's like everyone in the room just kind of trying not to laugh. Like there's no consumer value in pay-per-view. And everything I've just ranted about is further evidence to me that the system needs to change. And as younger generations start to have major dollars to spend on this stuff, it's becoming clear that they aren't accepting this crap. I mean, I bet if you look at the demos of who purchased the fight, it'll skew way older than if you look at who actually watched the fight. To even take all this theorizing one step further, that 1 million illegal stream number in the UK is even more crazy because the fight probably happened there around 4.30 a.m. and it cost way less than it did in the United States. That means that people in the UK probably woke up early on a Sunday morning already planning on watching the fight and they decided that 20 pounds, which is like 25 bucks, was just too much to pay for it. Or I guess it means maybe a bunch of kids in their 20s partied really late and they were just streaming the fight on their way home on their phone or something. I don't know what it means. It's crazy. To close on this subject, the real problem for me is that the people who work in the cable industry pay-per-view business will probably listen to me talk about this and they're going to end up saying that everything I talked about just makes it more of an argument to charge more and double down on the current model. That's the kind of thinking we're dealing with here. It drives me crazy. But let's come back. Let's, let's come back and focus on what's next year. I think it's easy to sit here and say, great fight. 
okay, we didn't lose money in the United States, like we made a little money, let's do it again. And that, however, is a total failure to recognize how much leverage Tyson Fury currently has right now. Potentially no fighter in the sport has more leverage than Fury does right now, even Triple G. And I know there's a lot of bad relationships in the mix when you just look at the heavyweight division. Tyson Fury, assuming it's true that his rematch clause didn't trigger because of the draw, he could not be situated better. Had he won the fight rather than gotten a draw, he likely would have been contractually obligated to come back and do it again at a set price. But if he doesn't have any contractual strings, then he can do whatever he wants next. And it's not like he stunk out the joint in getting a draw. He won the fight in most people's eyes, especially in the UK. He's also still the lineal champ. And trust me, if I was marketing his next fight, that would be made abundantly clear every time you saw an ad. This is the guy who beat the guy who beat the guy. And he took it seriously this time. He's in shape. I mean, he's one of the best in the world. It definitely takes the shine off AJ to a certain extent. While Fury was 400 pounds, AJ could do whatever he wanted, and eventually the UK public would have just kind of figured out who Deontay Wilder was. But every person in the UK knows who Tyson Fury is, and after this fight, it's clear that he's back. How many fights can AJ get away with where he doesn't fight Fury or or Wilder here? More importantly, and essential to Fury's leverage, is what the other options are out there for Wilder. Wilder and Showtime need Fury in a way that Fury doesn't need them. In terms of Wilder's next opponent, it's either Tyson Fury on pay-per-view in the United States, or it gets really tricky. Luis Ortiz in a rematch? Is that pay-per-view? Is that Showtime? Is that Fox? Karnaski or Brazil? Like, where does that air? What kind of payday is that for Wilder? What kind of payday does he want from all these? Like, He's probably getting a fraction of what he'd make against Fury or Anthony Joshua. At least AJ has some options that are higher level, you know, or at least more familiar names. But I mean, if I'm advising Wilder on what to do next, my answer is very clear. You need to ensure that Wilder gets Fury or AJ next, or you are simply not maximizing his revenue. You also have no leverage to ensure either of those things happen. So your job is exceedingly difficult right now. You're sort of a prisoner to Fury's demands for his next fight because you need him more than he needs you. And it's been made pretty clear you're probably not getting Joshua next, although I will say who knows at this point. But again, at what point does the general public in the UK say enough is enough? AJ and Fury need to fight. Or more precisely, what is the point where they need to fight, both have undefeated records and versions of titles, Both can depend on to be in shape, sober, and so you know you can maximize the revenue. Because while I love the story behind Tyson Fury beating mental illness, taking himself back from the brink of suicide, and all the positive stuff that comes from that, if I was Eddie Hearn, I'd make the Fury fight for AJ right now. I mean, how long can you depend on Fury to be undefeated, AJ to be undefeated, and both of them be ready for it? I wouldn't take any risks at all. I get not only that huge gate in the UK pay-per-view for this, but I'd get what I'd assume would be a huge DAZN US check for it and all the other foreign dollars that comes with it. I also get Fury before Fury fights Wilder a second time. 
Because once that happens, the WBC and lineal belts are going to be combined. I mean, assuming there's none of their draw. So that way, if you assume that Joshua wins, you can still get Wilder while he's undefeated with the belt. You can sort of double dip. You basically get, you get to fight for the lineal title with Fury, and then you get to fight for the WBC title with Wilder, and you get them while they're both undefeated sort of with those belts. At the end of the day here, there are now three guys who are in completely, like they're just in a completely different universe than everyone else in the heavyweight division. And I do think they'll all end up fighting each other, but the trick is going to be how to maximize revenue for your guy. Part of that equation is going to be to not be the odd man out in any scenario. Or if you are the odd man out, I mean, I guess it's better to be AJ, where Hearn has plenty of other options, but I just don't think that's doing it right. You, like, the other part of the equation is to get the other guys at the peak dollars for that moment. You definitely don't want to be the odd man out if you're representing Fury or Wilder. Like, their money, especially Wilder's money, goes down dramatically if they don't fight credible opponents here. Also, given Fury's history, you want him to be in these big fights right now while he's motivated and fully focused. You'll never have a chance to make more big money. But you also may not have a better chance to win the fight, which is the best way to sort of keep those guaranteed paydays coming. If the reports out there are, the, are correct, Fury can right now can take either fight. Like we've done the math for 300,000 buys. We did that last episode. But let's say a rematch does 400,000 buys. That's 30 million in total revenue, but it's really not like this is something I've sort of become a, a Twitter pet peeve of mine. Like when cable companies take their cut, it's probably down to 15 million or less. And then when you factor in expenses, it's probably 12 or 11 million, maybe less, maybe it's 13. Like you'll certainly have a bigger marketing plan for the rematch. And remember, like, Jared Hurd made a million bucks on the undercard, maybe more, like, the other guys got paid, too. You have to pay for all that stuff. And when you say there's $30 million in total revenue, like, just remember this. You as a consumer, let's say you have Spectrum or DirecTV, like, you pay Spectrum $75. You don't pay Showtime $75 and then Showtime pays money to Spectrum. Like, you pay Spectrum $75. And they give their money to Showtime whenever they give it to them. But they only give the percentage that Showtime's supposed to get. And then Showtime takes their percentage, and then it goes to the fight promotion. So it's like, yes, it's $30 million in total revenue. But, like, if you're the fight promotion, you don't ever actually see that $30 million. Like, you get it last. Anyways. If Fury fights AJ on pay-per-view, it's not ridiculous that DAZN would probably have to pony up at least $10 million, maybe more for the U.S. rights, which, I mean, is kind of the same U.S. dollars for rights that Wilder Fury 2 would have. So when you factor in that, you know, and, and what would be a record-setting U.K. pay-per-view and a gate for AJ Fury, all of a sudden, like, it becomes clear Fury's best financial option probably is to do the AJ fight. And remember, the, the Wilder rematch will always be there for him, even if he loses to, to AJ. And that Wilder fight still could be really big. It would be a strong candidate to do just as well, if not better, than the first one, which is a complete rarity for pay-per-view. 
there was a lot of interest in it, like I said. And if you listen to Eddie Hearn talking about the pay-per-view numbers, he was talking shit about it. But the good news for Showtime, its subscribers and both fighters, like, they didn't lose money. And that's huge. Like, that was a real question. This fight worked on pay-per-view, but only as the second pay-per-view of 2018. I mean, it barely squeaked by. Like we went over the math last episodes, but 320,000 pay-per-views is not leaving a lot of margin for error. And if there's a pay-per-view in January, two in March, and an April like rematch on pay-per-view, like that may not sell well. That's the bad news. And it could lead to a scenario where we were just talking about where this fight doesn't happen next. Five pay-per-views in five months is like a walking, talking advertisement for what DAZN is trying to do. And there's just no way mathematically that all of those pay-per-views will be successful. I mean, in fact, if there's five of them in five months, like you'll be lucky if three of them are successful. One or more of them, though, is bound to fail. And I think the pay-per-view industry is in for a serious market correction in 2019. Just look at what's happening in the UK right now. There's a pay-per-view every single month. And among other things, it waters down the normal TV contract and sort of speaks to a much larger market issue where there should be a correction at some point. For new listeners, I did an episode about six months ago that goes over the pay-per-view industry and how they just royally screw over U.S. customers. It was meant to be an evergreen episode, so please check it out. Tyson Fury seems like he wants Deontay Wilder next. But if I was Frank Warren and whoever else Tyson Fury listens to, I'd be really careful about my next fight selection. I'd look at all the options. I mean, I think you need to at least play off both sides and get the best deal possible here. I don't care what kind of relationship Warren has with Hearn. Like, you need to figure this out. There's too much money at stake here and the boxing politics need to get put aside. Like, this is way out of the realm of finding Terrence Crawford an opponent. Like, we're staring at a heavyweight division that could launch itself into the stratosphere. Tyson <coughs> Fury might be someone who becomes the heavyweight champ and maintains it for a couple years, but he may not. Like he might just be an interesting guy who sort of can beat or give some of the bigger stars trouble in the sport. And then he kind of has trouble keeping his own emotional issues in check. Like this is a, <coughs> a sport we need to strike while the iron is hot. And believe me, this is the moment to make the AJ fight if you're Tyson Fury. I hope what ends up happening is that they all fight each other. And Usyk eventually finds his way into the mix too. So there's four great ones in there. But you never know. And you don't want to be the odd man out here. Okay. Enough on that. I've already seen we're going long. <clears throat> Let's talk about the preview section. On Friday, December 14th, ESPN Plus... Coming on with a card featuring Gilberto Zerto Ramirez fighting Jesse Hart in a rematch for the WBO Super Middleweight title. The undercards aren't very interesting here. And though the first fight ended up being pretty good, not all of Zerto's fights have been TV-friendly fights. Let's see how this goes. There's no odds out yet. I do expect Zerto to be a decent favorite, maybe 6, 7, 8, 9 to 1, something like that, maybe even 10 to 1. I do expect the fight to be competitive, though. On Saturday, December 15th, lots of good stuff happening. Let's start with the big one on DAZN where Canelo Alvarez takes on Rocky Fielding for Fielding's WBA regular super middleweight title. 
Canelo coming in around a 16-ish to 1 favorite here. And look, this is a big card. It's a big moment for DAZN. Like I mentioned earlier, I was fortunate enough to talk to Joseph Markowski, who's the EVP of programming over at DAZN as part of the two-part piece that I'm going to do, be doing for The Ring magazine on streaming services and boxing. Markowski had some really interesting things to say about their business strategy. I hope you guys will read both articles. One of the really interesting tidbits was that DAZN does, in fact, have worldwide rights to Canelo's next 11 fights, and they plan on leveraging that and using it to go into any new markets. Um, he also assured me, interestingly enough, that there would be pay-per-view-worthy cards in between now and Canelo's next fight. Um, so back to this card, David Lemieux takes on Tariana Johnson at middleweight in addition to the Canelo fight. Tevin Farmer fights Francisco Fonseca for the IBF junior welterweight title. Saddam Ali is also in with Mauricio Herrera at welterweight. No eyes out on a lot of these fights, but this is a pretty legit card. Top to bottom, I mean, it's definitely not a competitive fight for Canelo, but I I think given the circumstances, I mean, he's come back on a quick turnaround after a brutal fight in September. I'll kind of give him a pass on that. I mean, if you're DAZN, it's obviously not how you want to start out this whole thing, but hey, like, you didn't really have a choice because this fight was made before Canelo signed with DAZN. The Lemieux Johnson and Ali Herrera fights, they're pretty good undercards for me. Like, I'm kind of all in on this one. On Saturday, December 22nd on ESPN+, Plus, Josh Warrington and Carl Frampton go at it for Warrington's IBF title from the UK, and that's a great fight. Most of the odds are like under 2-1 to one, with Frampton being the slight favorite. You can find him over 2-1, to one, like barely over 2-1 to one favorite at some places. A couple of interesting undercards, Martin Murray versus Hassan Endam and Michael Conlon fighting Jason Cunningham. Conlon's like a huge favorite. I think it's just more about him being on the card. But Murray and Don is essentially a pick em fight, and I think that looks like a good stylistic matchup. Like, bring it on. I'm ready to watch some boxing that weekend. Also from the UK and Zone, uh, Dillian White versus Derek Chisora in a good heavyweight rematch where I think White is about a 3-1 to one favorite. Going back to the heavyweight discussion from earlier, most people think the winner of this fight gets Anthony Joshua in April, but we'll see. Later in the day on Fox, the PBC kicks off their deal with Jamal Charlo fighting against William Monroe Jr. for Charlo's WBC interim middleweight belt. Jamal Charlo fights Tony Harrison for the WBC junior middleweight title. And I think that's actually a pretty interesting fight. Also on the card, Dominic Brazil versus Carlos Negron at heavyweight. I couldn't find odds on these fights. Um, I did kind of go over them last episode, or maybe it was two episodes ago. They're sort of underwhelming. I think the Harrison fight with Charlo could be pretty competitive, especially early on. Brazil is usually good TV, too. Um, Other stuff out there. Like I said, I have that two-piece article coming up for ringtv.com. I think one of them will be out tomorrow, hopefully, and then part two will be next week. And you'll get some more interesting tidbits from the interview with Joseph Markowski there that I did. Um, next episode, I'm going to do sort of a, a, a year wrap-up where I look at each entity, how much they cost, and what they delivered to consumers and sort of try to rank them. So I think that'll, <clears throat> that'll be a fun little exercise. 
And then we'll sort of have like two quiet weeks before we get back into, you know, two or three quiet weeks before we get back into the swing of things in, in sort of mid-January. Um, thank you guys for the support as always. Um, I don't say it enough. Thank you to Dave Duenas for just sort of running the whole show on this. He's been awesome uh, just to deal with the entire time. And and Gabriel Montoya, too. They've made a concerted effort, especially. I feel like uh, they've been great partners. You know, I'm sure Kurt Emhoff with Boxing Esquire would, uh, on Twitter for the Boxing Esquire podcast, I'm sure he'd say the same thing. They've been really fun to work with. And um, I, I love doing this show. I'm glad you guys are interested. I'm glad you guys listen. Thank you for all of it. Please read my pieces. Have a happy holidays as the holiday season sort of is in full swing right now. I don't think anyone ever thought we'd see this much boxing in the month of December, but enjoy it. And then we'll get a little break. And I guess all we'll get is like, you know, some weird Floyd Mayweather fight or whatever, whatever's happening over in Risen. Anyways, love it all. Enjoy you guys. Talk to you in two weeks. Right around, you know, Christmas Day. Goodbye. Did you get what you was looking for? With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.